welcome to the Human Flourishing Project. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. This week, and actually next week, I am going to devote the show to a person whom I didn't even know about a week ago, and now I am obsessed with, and his name is Arthur Bennett. I'm titling these two shows, The Wisdom of Arthur Bennett, Part 1 and Part 2. So let me tell you how I became infatuated with Arthur Bennett. I was reading a book I mentioned last week, Digital Minimalism, and I think I finished it over the weekend. I had I had been I was maybe a quarter of the way through it when I talked about it last week. And he mentioned he had a quote by this guy Arthur Bennett that I'll read in one of these two episodes, but the the idea was it had to do with the fact that human beings dramatically underrate the amount of mental energy that they have and in particular they underrate the value of of switching mental tasks and and just how much energy our minds actually have and how how we way too easily think that we're too tired when it's actually something else but the thing i really noticed was the title of the book that this quote came from which was how to live on 24 hours per day how to live on 24 hours per day and I, I love that title. It's one of those things where I saw somebody who can... So it's a takeoff. I, I assume these books existed 100 years ago, which is when a lot of Bennett's writing was, where you have how to how to tour Italy on $50 a day or something like that. And I just like this idea of how to live on 24 hours per day, because obviously we all have 24 hours per day. So he's obviously using live in a higher sense than just get through. So I really liked that. And then just 24 hours per day signified to me that this person really values time and as somebody who is obsessed with time as the currency of human flourishing, I was just intrigued by such a book. So I I made a note of many books that Newport mentioned to put on my list, but I immediately jumped into how to live on 24 hours per day and I loved it. I inhaled it. And then I read his next book, or I don't know if it's his next book, but another book called The Human Machine that I probably liked even more. And then I started on one called Mental Efficiency, which I'm reading now. And truth be told, I've spent too much of the last week reading this guy's stuff. It's super, super valuable, but probably the amount that I read wasn't quite the ideal amount since I have a lot of other stuff going on. But you will become the beneficiary because I can give you some of the things that I really, really like about it. So when I started reading this book, I noticed a couple of things. One is just he's a fantastic writer. But that's never an isolated attribute because a lot of what it means to be a fantastic writer is that you are bringing new clarity to the world for the reader. And that means that you have some sort of power of observation that's very, very unusual. And in particular, what I found unique initially about his power of observation is that in in modern terms, he keeps it real. As in, when he's talking to me as the reader and to to his readers, which are early 20th century people in Britain and maybe the U.S., he's really describing life as people experience it especially their internal lives, and he's pulling no punches. He has a lot of insight into the different challenges that human beings have. And I'm going to read you a lot of these because I think it's I think there's incredible value 
in the way that he challenges the way many of us experience our lives. And I'll just say from the outset, the way he's describing things, I would not say, oh, this really captures the way I experience my life. But I'll say that I've noticed a lot of these things. And in fact, at different times, I experienced a lot more like he's talking about. And I've done a lot of work to make my life a lot better. But he's he I know he's describing things that a lot of people experience and that on this show, we're trying to help you experience a lot less. But he he's, he has a lot of really good advice. But today, what I want to focus on is what I would call his wise ridicule, his wise ridicule. And I'll give you why I'm, why I'm calling it this. He, so next week, I want to focus on some of his positive insights. Of course, there will be some of those this week. But I want to get to a point, start with a point that he makes about the nature of ridicule that I just, I found so true. And then it it makes me realize why I've found so much of him helpful, even when he's saying things that make me think, oh, wow, part of what I do is ridiculous sometimes. So here's a section of one of his books. I have in my Kindle, I have the highlights of it and, and actually... It doesn't even in, in Kindle, you have this amazing ability to highlight things and then it, it shows up on your desktop and you can easy, easily copy and paste. But there are certain limits to how much you're allowed to highlight. And I highlighted so much of this thing that it's limiting my highlights and they're sort of all over the place. So I'm not always sure exactly which of the works this is coming from. I'm pretty sure this this one, I'm, I'm basically certain this one is from the human machine. So what I want to I want to read you this quote where he's describing somebody losing their temper but he, in particular, I want to draw your attention to his point about the value of, of viewing something as ridiculous. So he, he describes it as, and, and I apologize, I'm not going to perfectly quote everything in terms of not everything will be a continuous paragraph, but these will be things in the general vicinity. So he has this, at first he has this partial line where he describes When someone loses their temper, he says, quote, in that man, civilization has temporarily receded millions of years, unquote. So I love that. And he says, when you are ruffled, when you are conscious of a resentful vibration that surprises all your being, when your voice changes, when you notice a change in the demeanor of your companion who sees that he has touched a tender point, you may not go to the length of smashing furniture. I'm sorry. You may not go to the length of smashing furniture, which he had talked before about people smashing furniture, but you have had a fire and your dignity is damaged. This habit must be met and conquered, and it can be, by an even more powerful quality in the human mind. I mean the universal human horror of looking ridiculous. When I lose my temper, when I get ruffled, when that mysterious vibration runs through me, I am making a donkey of myself, a donkey and a donkey. You understand a preposterous donkey. I am behaving like a great baby. I look a fool. I am a spectacle bereft of dignity. Everybody despises me, smiles at me in secret, disdains the idiotic ass with whom it is impossible to reason. So he's giving this perspective and then he describes the positive of it, which is in hours of calm, he can slowly and regularly force his brain. So I, I should give some context for this. Sorry for interrupting the quote. But he has a, a big thing I'll talk about next week is that he's very, very, very focused on how to teach yourself to concentrate better 
and then in particular to concentrate on what he would call parts of your human machine, which is at the core of your brain, to improve. So he's very big on getting better at concentrating on one thing at a time for 15 or 30 minutes and then thinking about some key area where you can improve a lot. So to start this again, in hours of calm, he can slowly and regularly force his brain by the practice of concentration to familiarize itself with just this aspect so that in time its instinct will be to think first and not last of just this aspect. When he has arrived at that point, he is saved. No man who, at the very inception of the fire, is visited with a clear vision of himself as an errant ass and a pitiable object of contempt will lack the volition to put the fire out. So let me tell you my own experience with this, which is that I have a bit of a reputation for people who've seen me on YouTube, particularly in crowd situations, as somebody who doesn't lose my temper. And they often ask me, how do you keep so cool? And my standard answer is always, I just imagine that there's a camera on me. And to connect this to what Arthur Bennett is saying, I know what it looks like to lose your cool. It looks ridiculous. There's no benefit to it. So I am just always sort of terrified of losing my cool, not in a not in an actual way where I'm in a panic that it's going to happen, but I view that as a crazily bad outcome for me to just lose it, uh, particularly in public. And in private, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of analogies to what it's like to lose your temper in front of a camera. Now, I should say this is not an there there can be side effects with this kinds of thing if it's carried too much. For example, there can be issues of okay, well, I want to be able to express my emotions in certain ways. I don't want to repress in certain ways. I don't claim that this is the final answer in everything, but I really do notice that when somebody points out that something is ridiculous and I internalize it that way, it is really, really powerful. And so what I want to do is point out other things in life that that Bennett points out as ridiculous. And the thing that's so powerful but but tough about him is he really challenges himself and other human beings on very fundamental things. And today I want to, to focus on two of the big ones he focuses on, which are very related. And one is wasting time, and then one is wasting energy focusing on how other people should change. So let's start off with time. So he'll, I'll start off with a, a positive thing on time, and then I will move on to where he's being critical of how we often use time. So, you wake up in the morning, and lo, your purse is magically filled with 24 hours of the unmanufactured tissue of the universe of your life. It is yours. It is the most precious of possessions a highly singular commodity showered upon you in a manner as singular as the commodity itself. Impossible to get into debt. You can only waste the passing moment. You cannot waste tomorrow. It is kept for you. You cannot waste the next hour. It is kept for you. You have to live on, and then later on, you have to live on this 24 hours of daily time. Out of it, you have to spin health, pleasure, money, content, respect, and the evolution of your immortal soul. The supply of time, though gloriously regular, is cruelly restricted. And then he goes into the dissatisfaction. He describes 
that innumerable band of souls who are haunted more or less painfully by the feeling that the years slip by and slip by and slip by and that they have not yet been able to get their lives into proper working order. If we analyze that feeling, we shall perceive it to be primarily one of uneasiness, of expectation, of looking forward, of aspiration. It is a source of constant discomfort, for it behaves like a skeleton at the feast of all our enjoyments. We go to the theater and laugh, but between the acts it raises a skinny finger at us. We rush violently for the last train, and while we are cooling a long age on the platform waiting for the last train, it promenades its bones up and down by our side and inquires, O oh man, what hast thou done with thy youth? What art, what, art thou do, what art thou doing with thine age? Then he talks about more about unfulfilled aspiration. Unfulfilled aspiration may always trouble him, but he, he's talking about the person who actually tried, I should say, who, which he's saying most people don't do nearly enough to even try. But he will not be tormented in the way, the same way as the man who, desiring to reach Mecca and harried by the desire to reach Mecca, never leaves Brixton. It is something to have left Brixton. Most of us have not left Brixton. We have not even taken a cab to Ludgate Circus and inquired from Cooks the price of a, of a conducted tour. And our excuse to ourselves is that, is that there are only 24 hours in the day. So this is one of those situations where I don't want to ascribe, I don't want to ascribe this to anyone in particular, but I'll, I'll just say my own experiences, I do think a lot about, a lot about, am I making the most use of my time? And, and I will have experiences where I'll think, yeah, I did not use my time well. And then I, I look at a lot of other people and I don't think they're thinking nearly enough about, am I making the right use of my time? Or rather, what he's pointing out is people are, people are bothered by this and are not, but, but they're not doing anything about it. And therefore it's this, it's this constant companion, but it's not being acted on. And I just, so I would just say to the extent the shoe fits, wear it. And for many of us, it'll fit at least to some degree. What are we doing with our time? Are we really valuing our time? And one thing that he, he points out is that one of the the great things that we can do with our time that we don't do nearly enough of, and maybe this has improved a little bit uh, over time in general, but is really, really improve our own minds and improve our own minds. He calls that the human machine, but improve our own minds in in a particular way where we're really we're really trying to get better at living as a whole. So it's not just, oh, we, you know, we take up the violin or something, although that can be useful. It's that we really try to get good at living, or as I would call it on this show, good at flourishing, and that, that we really focus on our own machine, our own selves, and what, what we are responsible for versus focusing on how others could change and then we would be happy. So I want to read you a couple of quotes about this. So the first one, this is a positive one, and this sets the context for what he regards as people wasting their brains focused on others. And I just, I just love this. Uh, I just love this so much. Now, don't, don't take too much from the first line, uh, which is, there are men who are capable of loving a machine more deeply than they can love a woman. 
they are among the happiest men on earth. So don't necessarily take that as more than a woman, but I love this point about loving a machine. And he's talking about inventors. And interestingly, this is an era where invention isn't really a profession for many people at all, which it is now, which is it's a great thing about living now that you can be an inventor, be an engineer, which is uh, a species of inventor. Watch the inventors. Inventor, uh, invention is, sorry, watch the inventors. Invention is not usually their principal business. They must invent in their spare time. They must invent before breakfast, invent in the strand between lions in the office, that's uh, strand as a location, invent after dinner, invent on Sundays. See with what ardor they rush home of a night. See how they seize a half holiday, like hungry dogs of bone. They don't want golf, bridge, limericks, novels, illustrated magazines, clubs, clubs, whiskey, starting prices, hints about neckties, political meetings, yarns, comic songs, anturic salts, nor the smiles that are situate between a gay corsage and a picture hat. They never wonder at a loss what they will do next. Their evenings never drag, are always too short. You may indeed catch them at 12 o'clock at night on the flat of their backs, but not in bed. No, in a shed, under a machine, holding a candle, whose paths draw fatness up to the connecting rod that is strained, or the wheel that is out of center. They are continually interested, nay, enthralled. They have a machine, and they are perfecting it. And then he's going back to, he's about to go back to the way that a lot of people are suffering in life. In a word, the moment when it occurred to you that yours is the common lot, in that moment, have you not wished... Do you not continually wish for an exhaustless machine, a machine that you could never get to the end of? Would you not Would you not give your head to be lying on the flat of your back, peering with a candle, dirty, foiled, catching cold, but absorbed in the pursuit of an object? Have you not gloomily regretted that you were born without a mechanical turn because there is really something about a machine? It has never struck you that you do possess a machine. Oh, blind. Oh, dull. It has never struck you that you have at hand a machine wonderful beyond all mechanisms, in sheds, intricate, delicately adjustable, of astounding and miraculous possibilities, interminably interesting. That machine is yourself. I just I can't say anything about that except that I I love it. Now, the I mentioned the, the first object of ridicule was how people spent their time, or just in general, how we don't really think we're spending our time in the right way when, when we think about it a lot, but but we do it anyway. And then he, he, he focuses so much on how much focus we have on other people and how they should change, even though there's so much more profit to be had in improving ourselves and focusing on how we can change. So I'm just going to read a bunch of sections, but I want to dedicate this to my dear friend, Jesse McCarthy. Jesse has been my best friend for many, many years. And one of the things I'm proudest of between the two of us is that we have, we mutually helped each other go from massive complainers to massive, whatever the opposite of complainer is and we used to have these amazing maybe 10 years ago or so we would have these discussions about things that we were upset about and we would 
we would have these amazing analyses of what everyone else was doing wrong. And they were really insightful. I don't want to discredit us. But we would have these great walks and we would connect, but we would be connecting. And there was something that was good in that we were we were seeing the world in the same way and we were seeing things that were off. But we would complain all the time. And, and through some process of evolution, which is probably just both of us are very big on growth and on getting better, we, we realized this in one another to various degrees and we evolved. But I, when I was reading this, I thought, oh, yeah, Jesse would love this because this guy is just I, I wish I had read him 10 years ago. It would have just immediately set me straight because I would have seen how ridiculous uh, I was being. So here's a uh, here are just some excerpts from different um, sections of his book. So he's talking about somebody who's who wakes up in the middle of the night and starts thinking about what's wrong and what he would like changed. In that candid hour, after the exaltation of the evening and before the hope of the dawn, he will see everything in its true colors, except himself. There is nothing like a sleepless couch for a clear vision of one's environment. He will see all his wife's faults, and the hopelessness of trying to cure them. He will momentarily see, though with less sharpness of outline, his own faults. He will probably decide that the anxieties of children outweigh the joys connected with children. He will admit all the shortcomings of existence, will face them like a man, grimly, sourly, in a sturdy despair. He will mutter, Of course I'm angry. Who wouldn't be? Of course I'm disappointed. Did I, did I expect this 20 years ago? Yes, we ought to save more, but we don't, so there you are. I'm bound to worry. I know I should be better if I didn't smoke so much. I know there's absolutely no sense at all in taking liquors. Absurd to be ruffled with her when she's in one of her moods. I don't have enough exercise. Can't be regular somehow. Not the slightest use hoping that things will be different. Because I know they won't. Queer world. Never really what you may call happy, you know. Now, if things were different, he loses consciousness. And this is what I really love. It is his environment that has occupied his attention. And his environment things that he would wish to have different. Did he not know, out of the fullness of experience, that it is futile to desire such a change? What he wants is a pipe that won't put itself into his mouth, a glass that won't leap of its own accord to his lips, money that won't slip untouched out of his pocket, legs that without asking will carry him certain miles every day in the open air, habits that practice themselves, a wife that will expand and contract according to his humors, like a Wernicke bookcase, always complete, but never finished. Wise man, he perceives at once that he can't have these things, and so he resigns himself to the universe and settles down to a permanent restrained discontent. No one shall say he is unreasonable. Another quote related to this, which is, it's contrasting the amount that we spend focused on other people to the small amount that we often focus on ourselves. And, and in particular, he's talking here about how we can remove friction from our lives. And he's, con he's contrasting that to, we recognize the need to remove friction from machines. As for the skill to avoid the waste of power involved by friction in the business of living, do we give an hour to it a month? Do we ever at all examine it, save an amateurish and clumsy fashion? A young lady produces a watercolor drawing. Very nice, we say and add to ourselves, for an amateur. But our living is more amateurish than that young lady's drawing, though surely we ought every one of us to be professionals at living. Now, he's got a really harsh line. 
when we have been engaged in the preliminaries of living for about 55 years, we begin to think about slacking off. So this guy is, is harsh, but he makes a lot of, uh, a lot of tough points. More on this focus on others. The supreme muddlers of living are often people of quite remarkable intellectual faculty with quite a remarkable gift of being wise for others. So I certainly, Jesse and I certainly had that in common. More on focused on others versus ourselves. And he has this analogy to training dogs. When I see men unhappy and inefficient in the craft of living from sheer crass inattention to their own development, when I see misshapen men building up businesses and empires and never stopping to build up themselves, when I see dreary men expending precisely the same energy on teaching a dog to walk on its hind legs as would brighten the whole color of their own lives, I feel as if I wanted to give up the ghost, so ridiculous, so fatuous does the spectacle seem. But of course I do not give up the ghost. The paroxysm passes. Only, I really must cry out, can't you see what you're missing? Can't you see that you're missing the most interesting things on earth, far more interesting than businesses, empires, and dogs? Doesn't it strike you how clumsy and short-sighted you are, working always with an inferior machine when you might have a smooth, gliding perfection? Doesn't it strike you how badly you're treating yourself? Now, I should say, as the host of this show, one, one thing that I expect from this is that, A, the people that are listening to this are people that have these vices much less than average, but I'll bet that most of you, like me, like being made aware of any extent of these things. So that's, that's, that's one of these things where if you really, if you're on the premise of wanting to grow, then this can be really helpful to see what's ridiculous, even, even in your, even though you're, you're generally focused on growing. And then there are a lot of people who aren't focused at all. Another section in terms of focusing on others he uh, he starts by quoting some certain uh, certain sort of cliche ideas, and then he goes from there. Look within. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Oh, yes, you protest. All that's old. Epictetus said that. Marcus Aurelius said that. Christ said that. They did. I admit it readily. But if you were ruffled this morning because your motor omnibus broke down and you had to take a cab, then so far as you are concerned, these great teachers lived in vain. You, calling yourself a reasonable man, are going about dependent for your happiness, dignity, and growth upon a thousand things over which you have no control, and the most exquisitely organized machine for ensuring happiness, dignity, and growth is rusting away inside you, and all because you have a sort of notion that a saying said 2,000 years ago cannot be practical. And then more on this when he's, uh, this, this I especially love. But the directors ought to have granted my application, you insist. Exactly. I agree. But we are not in a universe of oughts. You have a special apparatus within you for dealing with a universe where oughts are flagrantly disregarded, and you are not using it. You are lying awake, keeping your wife awake, injuring your health, injuring hers, losing your dignity and your cheerfulness. Why? Because you think that these antics and performances will influence the board? Because you think that they will put you into a better condition for dealing with your environment tomorrow? Not a bit, simply because the machine is at fault. One of his ideas that he stresses over and over is, when something's going wrong, look at your machine. That's where you have control. Another one in terms of focusing on how others should change. This one is, this one may hit home. This is a, 
this is, he, he's a tough guy. So the, what I like about him is he's really, he, he's real with us and you don't see this very often. By the way, I should say this guy, Arthur Bennett, he was primarily a novelist and quite financially successful at his time, uh, during his time. So he wasn't primarily a, a self-help writer, but he obviously did it in a way that I like. So this is going to be a, an extended set of passages, and then I think there's one more that I want to share, and then I'll wrap up. Although we are incapable of persuading our machines to do effectively that which they are bound to do somehow, we continually overburden them with entirely unnecessary and inept tasks. We cannot, it would seem, let things alone. For example, in the ordinary household, the amount of machine horsepower expended in fighting for the truth is really quite absurd. My wife states that the Joneses have gone into a new flat, of which the rent is 165 pounds a year. Now, Jones has told me personally that the rent of his new flat is 156 pounds a year. I correct my wife. Knowing that she is in the right, she corrects me. She cannot bear that a falsehood should prevail. It is not a question of nine pounds. It is a question of truth. Her enthusiasm for truth excites my enthusiasm for truth. Five minutes ago, I didn't care two pence whether the rent of the Joneses' new flat was 165 pounds or 156 pounds or 1,056 pounds a year, but now I care intensely that it is 156 pounds. We each of us squander enormous quantities of that horsepower which is so precious to us, and the net effect is not. We give a very great deal too much attention to the state of other people's machines. I cannot too strongly, too sarcastically deprecate this astonishing habit. So, for Alex to interject here, this is what I mean by the wisdom of his ridicule. He's very focused on making us view certain behaviors as ridiculous, and I think this is a great service that he's doing. Continuing, considering the difficulty we have in our own brains, where our efforts are sure of being accepted as well-meant, and where we have, at any rate, a rough notion of the machine's construction, our intrepidity in adventuring among the delicate adjustments of other brains is remarkable. We must needs voyage into the China of our brother's brain and explain there that things are seriously wrong in that heathen land and make ourselves unpleasant in the hope of getting them put right. Intimacy is no excuse for rough manners, though the majority of us seem to think it is. You are not in charge of the universe. You are in charge of yourself. And this is just too good. You cannot hope to manage the universe in your spare time. And if you try, you will probably make a mess of such part of the universe as you touch while gravely neglect while while ah, let me while gravely neglecting yourself. I'm going to read that whole thing again because I I like it. You cannot hope to manage the universe in your spare time. And if you try, you will probably make a mess of such part of the universe as you touch while gravely neglecting yourself. And then he has some some positive advice. And this this I might talk more about next week, but he says, all individualities other than one's own are part of one's environment. Treat them as inevitable. To assert that they are inevitable is not to assert that they are unalterable. Only the alteration of them is not primarily your affair. It is theirs. Your affair is to use them as they are without self-righteousness, blame, or complaint for the smooth furtherance of your own ends. Now, one thing I want to admit as I was reading this, which just shows I wasn't totally getting the point initially, was I started thinking, okay, yeah, other people are not doing this, blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, oh, no, wait, this is for me. Like, forget about other people. This is just 
This is just about you. So I have one more passage. I think this is the last one. I hope you're enjoying these as much as I enjoy uh, reading them. So let's see. Where is this last one? Oh, this is one on time. So I, I forgot to read this one earlier, but th this one is this one is a tough one. But th and th this was maybe one of the first things that struck me in. I, it, I'm pretty sure this is from How to Live on 24 Hours Per Day. And I'll, I'll start off with the positive, including the quote uh, from the Newport that, that Calvert Newport took in her, his book. So he's he's talking about somebody, and the context here is people who don't particularly enjoy their careers. And he, he says at the beginning, like this applies to if you do enjoy your career, but he's particularly saying, like, if you don't love your career, you at least have all of this other time that you can do a lot with. So he talks about the eight hours of work and then he's talking about the rest of the 16 hours. During those 16 hours, he is free. He is not a wage earner. He's not preoccupied with monetary cares. He is just as good as a man with a private income. This must be his attitude. One of the chief things which my typical man has to learn is that the mental faculties are capable of a continuous hard activity. They do not tire like an arm or a leg. All they want is change, not rest, except in sleep. And then he describes, so that, that's the quote from the Newport book. I'm not sure that's entirely true. I mean, I, I certainly find that meditating can be incredibly helpful, but in general, we have a lot of mental energy or potential mental energy that's not used, and we way too easily think that we're we're tired in some sort of absolute sense versus a, a state of mind or something that can be addressed. So continuing, this is how he describes how a lot, what a lot of people do when they come home. Or rather, rather, this is in the morning, and then he goes on. But immediately he bangs the front door. His mental faculties, which are tireless, become idle. He walks to the station in a condition of mental coma. Arrived there, he usually has to wait for the train. On hundreds of suburban stations every morning, you see men calmly strolling up and down platforms while railway companies unblushingly rob them of time, which is more than money. Hundreds of thousands of hours are thus lost every day simply because my typical man thinks so little of time that it has never occurred to him to take quite easy precautions against the risk of its loss. The idea of devoting to them 30 or 40 consecutive minutes of wonderful solitude— for nowhere can one be more perfect no for nowhere can one more perfectly immerse oneself in oneself than in a compartment full of silent withdrawn smoking males is to me repugnant i cannot possibly allow you to scatter priceless pearls of time with such oriental lavishness i just love this guy and then he he describes later in the day you are pale and tired at any rate your wife says you are pale and you give her to understand that you are tired. During the journey home, you have been gradually working up the tired feeling. The tired feeling hangs heavy over the mighty suburbs of London, like a virtuous and melancholy cloud, particularly in winter. You don't eat immediately on your arrival home, but in, an in about an hour or so, you feel as if you could sit up and take a little nourishment. And you do. Then you smoke seriously. You see friends, you potter, you play cards, you flirt with a book, you note that old age is creeping on. You take a stroll. You caress the piano. By Jove, a quarter past eleven. You then devote quite forty minutes to thinking about going to bed, and it is conceivable that you are acquainted with a genuinely good whiskey. At last you go to bed, exhausted by the day's work. 
Six hours, probably more, have gone since you left the office. Gone like a dream. Gone like magic. Unaccountably gone. This is just such a service that he's providing by, to whatever extent this applies to us, and, and it applies quite a bit to many people, and, and I certainly see lots of room for improvement that this kind of thing highlights. It's such a service for him to, on, on the positive premise of just our time is so valuable and there's so much to be gained by working on our own minds and our own lives versus focusing on how others can and should change, from that, from that very positive perspective, it's so valuable that he's willing to ridicule us and ridicule the way that so much of human life is wasted. And this is really a, a deep feeling that I have that it's it's good to read somebody say because it, it's a hard kind of thing to say that you feel like, yeah, most people are wasting their lives in some big way. And, and I, I'm reluctant to say stuff like that in part because people don't, there's also a perspective where people don't appreciate the positives in their lives enough. So I don't just, you don't, you never want to act like, oh yeah, nothing matters at all. It's not that, but it's more like almost everyone has something really positive in their lives and, and something good that led to that. But that's so inconsistent. It's such the exception. And yet with a different mindset and different habits and different actions, life could be much, much different, much, much better. So that's, that is the wisdom of Arthur Bennett and part one, wise ridicule. Would love to know your thoughts. Feel free to share them on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash human flourishing project. You can also email me with any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail at alex at alexepstein.com. Always enjoy your feedback on this podcast. I had mentioned last week that we were going to have a psychologist. I was going to interview him, so that has fallen through again. We're going to give him one more chance. Um, I'm going to make fun of him when he comes on the show, probably. But I still think there's a good chance that that could be really, really valuable, so I am willing to uh, to persevere on that one. But uh, next week, I will be back and I will talk about some of the positive advice from Arthur Bennett. And I will, I hope many of you try reading some of his stuff, although perhaps do not go as overboard as I did and pretty much only read that for a week. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I will talk to everyone next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been the Human Flourishing Project. <laughs>